Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. So, when you start to study art history, you basically fall into two categories. Those who love the Italian Renaissance because the art is really, really beautiful and so deeply human. And those who pretend they don't because yawn, right? Enjoy your putti, loser. I prefer my coffee black with ashes of German expressionist fire. I, of course, pretended I was the latter in college, you know, to be cool. But it was only more recently that I dove back into the Renaissance and realized how totally fascinating it is. And you can dive in, too, with The Great Courses Plus, where you have unlimited access to explore anything about everything, from leading professors and experts in their fields. You can stream thousands of lectures on virtually any topic, or listen podcast-style with The Great Courses Plus app. And this particularly awesome course was The Great Artists of the Italian Renaissance, which restores so much intelligence, dignity, and spirituality to these gorgeous paintings that even a poser college student like I was couldn't protest. And listeners of The Lonely Palette have a special limited-time offer of a full-month free unlimited access. Head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely to start your free month today. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely. of cloth coming from the ceiling. There are columns of white fluffy fabric that are in knots in some places and projected onto this fabric is colors that are slowly moving downwards. The colors are red and yellow and white. The sounds are ethereal and they sound like whispers and it almost sounds like they're in my head. The scale is huge. It like, is. It's almost like the very scale, big. Like I'm feeling smaller because the scale is so big of these huge knots. They don't look like pieces of cloth because of the, the enormity of the, the knots and a um, couple of knots on each of the, the legs. They're almost like legs, mm-hmm. <laughs> giant legs. Yeah. yeah. The closer you get, the fluffier it looks. Right? It's like yeah. cottony. Yeah. As if we, if we get, kept getting closer, it could be like, like almost like a spider wove it. It looks like dog toys. You are not the first person who said that. I'm sure I'm not. It's very alluring. It's, I kind of want to go in. I know. I want to yeah. see what's at the center. I'd feel like I was in a, in a grouping of trees, yeah. old historic trees, right, and looking up. Yeah. Very, it would be very mystical. I definitely want to touch them. <laughs> you know, they're very physical. They do look like muscle fibers. And I want, and I want to know what the knots mean. You know, what's, what are the stories that are, that are being told here? The way the projection flows down the knots almost makes the knots feel as if they're speaking. It's like a forest of sound and memories. That's what it reminds me of, like memories and like the way it's moving. Like your thoughts are like, they're like fluid and they keep, they keep changing and 
changing into something else and like moving and emotions. It reminds me of the symbol of infinity. So it kind of is like reminding me of the infiniteness of these stories. There's also infinite possibilities as to what they could be because we don't know what they are yet. And even the way that like the knots are, like when you look into it, it seems as if they're endless. So it's what I got from it. Like all of your senses are being occupied at once. You know, you have this visual pattern that's flowing down the knots themselves. And then you do have the knots which are magnificent in their own right. And then you have her speaking and singing. And it the combination of all three feel as if the knots can almost move and they're like mouths talking and they're telling their story in a way. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 35, Cecilia Vicuña's Disappeared Kipu, from 2018. I was once asked, in one of those rhetorical personality-assessing icebreakers, if, given the choice, I would rather be able to speak conversationally in every language or be able to talk to animals. To me, it was such a no-brainer that it didn't even strike me as much of a conversation starter. Every language, obviously. I mean, first of all, I feel like the novelty of actually knowing what's going on in my cat's head would probably wear off pretty quickly. But secondly, I just love languages, and I really love conversation. I can't even imagine how glorious it would be to walk off a plane and feel the flow of those words just gliding off my tongue, to instantly understand what I was reading, the way your brain just does in that calm, unconscious state of understanding. Instead of the seized up, squinting, locked box that my brain usually becomes when I go to another country. Because the reality is, I'm a pretty crappy linguist and it's always been a bummer. When you're not great at languages, your resting state is a Teflon pan under an open faucet. The words flow over you, above you, around you, and your ear simply adapts to hearing those sounds and absorbing nothing. We've talked before about what happens when language itself has no meaning, back in episode 17. And we talked about how it simply becomes sound, a series of Dada-esque utterances, the kinds of nonsense that Marcel Duchamp would have delighted in. But language that is emptied of its meaning isn't the same as language that sits untranslated in a locked box. It's meaning there, but unreachable. That's something else, something much more painful. And it invites different questions. What happens to language that is robbed of its meaning? Where does the meaning go? 
What does it mean for the ability to communicate, to connect, to remember? And if foreign invaders come and colonize your land and rewrite your culture and deliberately destroy the translation, how do you still make a sound? These are the fundamental questions of this installation, Disappeared Kipu, and by its Chilean artist and poet, Cecilia Vicuña. But it's understandable if you didn't think to ask them when you walked into the gallery. At first glance, it's a bizarre scene. The darkened room houses this massive kipu, a series of thick, raw wool knots that hang from the ceiling like a forest of trees, lit up like a disco with projections of colorful Andean cloth. To walk around this installation is to be in a continual state of recentering. The kipu feels just a little too big for the space, and so you find yourself skirting around it, not sure if you can trust your own depth perception. The knotted raw wool hangs heavily, like a rope ladder of bedsheets tossed outside a fairy tale tower window and pooling on the floor. From a distance, the wool looks like sun-bleached bones, yet it's actually malleable, soft, and oddly welcoming closer up. Even though you're restricted from actually walking into them, it seems like it would be cozy in the center. And as you walk around them, you're hearing this recording, something you didn't even originally notice, which then becomes something you can't ignore. It's otherworldly and eerie, whispers, chants, scraps of indecipherable poetry and song, swelling up in startling moments and then dying back down again. These sounds are Vicuña herself, over multiple tracks, pulling you into the space of the kipu, this large, tactile, material thing, alive with projections and voices a quote-unquote multi-sensory memorial, in her words. And suddenly you realize that even if you don't entirely understand what you're looking at, and certainly not what you're hearing, that you're in the presence of a powerful, tactile metaphor for language, memory, culture, awareness, all of which has been lost. And you are experiencing that metaphor, that presence of absence, even if you don't understand what exactly is absent. But you are aware that you are witnessing that untranslated language, the locked box. And this juxtaposition of material and metaphor is at the core of Vicuña's art. Like so much of what she creates, Disappeared Kipu exists simultaneously in the realm of the physical and the metaphysical, between the concrete historical resonance of her craft and the eloquent lyrical metaphors of her poetry. Between, in her words, quote, a tactile and an imaginary place, end quote. A place where an enormous installation of thick, raw wool can also draw our awareness not only to a disappeared society, but to the nature of absence itself. 
And this juxtaposition then becomes the foundation upon which she goes to work, reclaiming her own ancestral traditions and her own lived cultural and aesthetic history, with the aim of ultimately transforming these pieces of herself outward into tools of awareness, resistance, and social change. And so it stands to reason that the more that you know about Cecilia Vicuña, the better you'll understand her art. She was born in Santiago in 1948 and studied art at the University of Chile before being exiled to London after Pinochet's coup d'etat in 1973. This was when she first became an activist, working to help identify victims of politically motivated kidnappings and murders that became routine during 20th century Latin American dictatorships. She then moved to New York in 1980, where she lives and works to this day. And like I said, what makes her work so rich is that at any given moment, we experience the confluence of her own lived history, her own life, and her ancestral history of Andean folk art. She is a powerful advocate for the disappeared, both whom she saw disappear in her own lifetime and from having been born into a deep history of erasure as an indigenous Quechua Chilean. And this foot in both histories is what makes her work so inextricable from her very identity, right down to the word vicuña, which translates as an Andean camel known for its wool. And it's not just a charming coincidence that this should be her name. It actually speaks to the role that fiber and textiles play in Andean culture and in the lives of the Incan peoples that comprised it. But we'll come back to this. The thing is, too, is that learning more about Cecilia Vicuña can also present its own set of challenges. Her work presents a bit of a pickle for art history's love of tidy categorization. When your art is so deeply a reflection of yourself, it's going to contain multitudes. To that end, the reason why you might not have heard of Cecilia Vicuña before this is largely a reflection of her eclecticism. Call her a fiber artist, a land artist, a Chilean folk artist, an environmentalist, a historian, a feminist, an activist, and a poet— and she'll respond. Yet no single one of these identities is sufficient without the others. Because each one is gently woven together through the threads of her words, tying together the fundamental concepts of memory, language, and awareness. What to her is the most delicate, most precious, and most precarious things in the human experience. First, memory that shapeshifter, which is so temperamental even as we live, and which we take with us when we die. Second, language, which is how we make meaning, which acts as the delivery system of memory from generation to generation, and which is so easily crushed under the boot of a colonizer. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, awareness. Have you ever really stopped and tried to define awareness? It's so obvious and yet so startling, like taking a moment to focus on the existence of your own tongue. 
And in Vicuña's poetry, awareness is this active, awake, unifying force that brings together memory and language, language and meaning. Awareness tells us who we are in relation to others, in relation to our shared histories, in relation to our own personal histories. It tells us what we've acquired and what we've lost. Quote, I believe what changes the world is our awareness, Vicuña writes, and I consider awareness to be the main art of human beings, end quote. And of course, awareness is this deeply individual thing. It requires our subjective effort, our conscious decision to be open rather than closed, connected rather than alone. Awareness is, after all, the primary connection, the primary acknowledgement between ourselves and each other, and between ourselves and the world that we live in, and on. And I should add that this final point, awareness of the world that we live on, is the cornerstone of Vicuña's concerns as an environmentalist. This idea that we are aware of the earth, that the earth is aware of our presence, and that we are aware of its awareness. And it's the breakdown of this ongoing awareness exchange, she believes, that is responsible for the current environmental crisis that we now find ourselves in. It's the direct result of our lack of awareness. And I mention this specific facet of her art because she herself considers it foundational to all of her art. When Vicuña tells the origin story of her life as an artist, she recalls being a little girl in Chile, playing on the beach and feeling the grease of the oil that was blackening her hands and feet. She writes, quote, One day I felt the wind encircle my waist like a snake. I turned and realized the sea, the sun, and the wind were aware. Undone by living awareness, I melted to the ground. I picked up a stick and planted it in the sand." End quote. And she evokes this story in her most recent large-scale outdoor exhibition, where she collected pieces of trash that washed up on the beach and assembled tiny sculptures she called Los Precarios, translated as the precarious, the fragile. Feathers, shells, bones, beads, held together with string and wire, presented as offerings back to the sea. These are delicate works meant to be washed away. As she writes in the catalog, quote, we are made of throwaways and we will be thrown away, end quote. And so all of this conceptual and historical background brings us back to the object at hand. Because these concepts, memory, language, and awareness, are themselves the threads that are woven together to form this massive kipu. And like the precarious, it too is an ephemeral memorial to what has been lost, to what history has treated as a throwaway. Except now, it's an entire people. So what is a kipu? The word itself is translated as a talking knot. 
It's a knotted record-keeping device that was used throughout the Incan Empire and was crucial for communication in a society that had no written language. The Incan Empire stretched over 3,000 miles, from present-day Ecuador to central Chile, so you can imagine the value of a codified means of record-keeping across that kind of distance. And there were two kinds of quipus, one that was meant to be administrative and statistical, tracking taxes, inventories, census data, while the other was more narrative, intending to preserve stories and history, poems, songs. These narrative quipus told stories of rulers and military victories and inexplicable cosmological events, quote, giving life to these valleys, as Vicuña writes, connecting communities to the whole, creating a vision of the commons as a living being, a quipu including all, end quote. And the thing is, historians have been able to crack the code of the first kind of quipu, that administrative quipu, the direction that the knots were tied in, the number of knots per string, they're understood, mostly because they are repeatable, mathematical, objective. But the narrative quipus remain untranslated. Because after the 15th century Spanish conquest of the Inca, quipus were considered a threat. The colonizers simply didn't understand what they were looking at. And so they were just seen as idolatrous, indigenous objects that needed to be banned and ultimately destroyed. And there's a painful irony to the fact that the few quipus that we have today were mostly salvaged from pre-colonial burial sites, that death essentially preserved them. Because this intentional destruction of a cultural artifact is itself a kind of death. It's not just the obliteration of the physical object itself. It's the obliteration of memory, you know, that shapeshifter that we take with us when we die. Only a privileged few Inca even had the ability to translate the narrative quipu before the arrival of the colonizers. And they, savagely but not surprisingly, were among the first targets. Awareness was destroyed even before the objects. And so the object itself is now inert, lifeless, a dead body robbed of its awareness, a locked box robbed of its meaning. The quipu, Vicuña writes, that remembers nothing. So now look again at Vicuña's enormous installation, the 25-foot-long woolen knots that are suspended from the ceiling, much larger and thicker than any traditional quipu would ever be, as though magnified by a mind subsumed with grief. The quipu hangs in the middle of the room, surrounded by displays of traditional quipus and Andean cloth, like planets revolving around the sun, as the Boston Globe critic Kate McQuaid writes. And yet they also feel like they're grounding this enormous metaphor more firmly in its historical context. They help to explain what we're seeing, especially the projections of Andean cloth on the wool, as though the wool itself were bodies to be clothed in this fabric. 
These textiles were utterly ordinary in Andean culture, Vicuña writes. Yet the spiritual value of creating them, and especially the process of weaving, can't be overlooked. Quote, weaving, she says, combined with the knot-making language of the kipu, conveyed the understanding of the sacred threads that interconnected all beings in the cosmos. All weavers, she concludes, can see a universe between thread and thread, end quote. And it's striking how, in Vicuña's work, the act of weaving becomes this metaphor for all creation. Projected onto the kipu, this simple cloth becomes a series of stories that are memorialized on this narrative canvas. Her chanting and soundscape becomes a voice conversing with the past. And we can imagine Vicuña evoking this past in our present, creating the kipu, cutting the wool, tying the knots, briefly recovering what has been lost while simultaneously drawing our awareness to the fact that it has been lost, that even this kipu is ephemeral, that because of the weight of the wool, these knots will eventually fall out, and whatever story they tell will be gone. And I think this is also an important element to this specific kipu, that if these knots are indeed telling a contemporary story, it hasn't been translated for us. Maybe we now understand on a broader level what Vicuña is doing in this installation, but the kipu itself sits untranslated. And she plays with this juxtaposition between welcome and resistance, of the language that you simultaneously can and can't understand. For example, she describes the kipu itself as womb-like. She told me this when I asked her how she anticipated a visitor would experience it. And yet, she doesn't let you go inside it. Many fiber artists welcome you into their altered spaces, their unexpected use of materials, but she doesn't. There are lines on the floor that you can't cross. Inviting and tactile as it is, you can't actually touch this wool. The kipu is still playing the role of this untranslated device that resists our understanding. And maybe these knots do mean something to Vicuña. Maybe she does speak their language. But if she does, she's not translating them for us. She's a poet, not a translator. And she's rightly skeptical anyway when it comes to secondhand translation. I mean, after all, what we know about Incan culture is what we've learned from the Spanish. And so, if we want these knots to talk again, we can't depend on her. We have to use our own memory, our own awareness, to project a story onto this kipu, to make it speak again in a language that we can understand. And I was thinking about this a lot, this idea that Vicuña's role is done here and that the rest is up to me, to interpret this, to translate this. I spent an afternoon in the gallery in the presence of this kipu listening. And then a crazy thing happened. Completely innocuously, a young mother moved past me with her babbling baby in the stroller. 
I didn't notice him at first. His little squeaks were barely audible over Vicuña's vocalizations. They just kind of sounded one and the same. But it was almost like he was in conversation with her. Like, hey, he thought, I can't do much, but I can make weird little sounds too. Vicuña's recording got louder, and so did the baby. Of course, his mother noticed, and as young mothers do, and which I probably would have done, she hightailed it out of the gallery so as not to disturb the other visitors. And I wanted to chase after them and say, wait, your baby actually understands this installation so much better than any of us. He connects with these sounds. He makes his own meaning. And he creates this nascent language in response. He understands his own awareness, even if he couldn't possibly understand yet what he's aware of. And maybe it is this awareness, so primal and rich with possibility, that creates the potential for a brand new translation. An unlocked box cracked wide open and containing the universe that exists between thread and thread. The installation, Disappeared Kipu, is on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston until January 21st, 2019. And I should add that the MFA generously gave me the opportunity to interview Cecilia Vicuña, and you can listen to the full interview on my website, and I'll also be releasing it separately into your podcatchers, so keep an eye out. Special thanks to Ashley Blymas, to the intrepid museum goers at the MFA, and to Cecilia herself for speaking so freely with me about her work. For more information and past episodes, go to thelonelypalette.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram at The Lonely Palette, or like us on Facebook, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you really want to deliver some holiday cheer, support the show on Patreon. And guys, we are so close to hitting the goal of the second annual year-end listener Patreon challenge, we can practically taste that droopy face. Go to patreon.com slash lonelypalette and be the hero that pushes us over the edge. And remember that if you pledge at $5 or more per episode between November 12th and December 31st, you're entered into the running to win a framed cross-stitch of the Ecce Homo by the local Somerville artist Purgatory Limited. This is literally not an opportunity you can afford to miss. Again, that's patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of Boston-centric, idea-driven podcasts. And if you're digging hearing from a living artist, then you won't want to miss a recent episode of Culture Hustlers, where host Lucas Spivey and his team sits down with Leandra Lesur, winner of Art Prize 10, that overwhelming, incredible art festival that's held yearly in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lesur talks about her BFA, Black Lives Matter, and what it means to be all in on your mission as an artist. Listen now at hubspokeaudio.org or directly at culturehustlers.com. <laughs>